All right, so we are um, starting a new class called Our Worshipping World. We're going to look at some uh, different world religions and cults and dive into that. Uh, I wanted to start off just by asking, kind of throwing it out to you all, what are some reasons it might be wise for Christians to study other religions? Thoughts, initial thoughts on that. Understand their worldview. Why would that be important? Evangelism, absolutely. Talk on the same level with them. Yep, yep. Defend our position. Yep, absolutely. Understand the uniqueness of Christianity. Yeah, absolutely. I even think doing this can help deepen our affections for the superiority of Christ and um, just what, what we believe in in him. And, um, yeah, and those are all great. I think helping articulate our own faith in God and our own Christian worldview. Um, I think just building cultural intelligence in general is always helpful and appropriate. Um, engage with points of commonality and differences between Christianity and other religions and cults. Um, I don't really have time to, to you know, unpack this passage. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I just wanted to throw it up there. Um, it's Acts 17, 22 to 36, where the Apostle Paul is in Athens. He's at the Areopagus, and this is an incredible um, clinic that he gives on how to um, talk to people of other beliefs, of other cultures. Um, his posture in this passage um, is very humble. He really honors them. He honors that they have religious beliefs, that they, they, they get some things right. He, he kind of affirms what they get right. He shows incredible cultural intelligence in this passage. He uses their language. He quotes their poets. He quotes their philosophers. Um, he even has the wisdom of, you know, you have this one statue to the unknown God. Let me tell you about that. Uh, but, just, but then finally, most importantly, his confidence in this passage his confidence that, um, you know, Christ is the Messiah and that uh, the Christian standpoint um, is superior. So, I, yeah, I commend that passage to you, but it's a, it's a great example of, um, uh, in the Bible, of someone, one of the apostles doing this well. Um, just a quick overview of what we're going to cover. Judaism today, <clears throat> Islam. We were going to have Jonathan Hastings, one of our uh, missionaries that we support, here with us next week to talk about Islam. He, he's been doing ministry to the Islamic world a long time. Uh, unfortunately, he's not able to come, uh, but Dan was able to connect with another friend who's done ministry to, the, to Muslims, um, who's going to talk to us. We'll talk about Jehovah's Witness. Steve Welsh will teach that. We'll talk, um, I'll teach on Christian science and Scientology. Scott Pryor is going to teach on Hinduism. He's got some background in that. Mike Newkirk is going to teach on Buddhism and New Age. Um, Bruce Narverson is going to teach on Mormonism. He has some connections to that world. And then we're going to talk about atheism. I know it's not a religion, but if you actually look at the landscape of Raleigh, uh, the biggest category outside of Christianity is atheism. Um, and so we could talk a lot about atheism. I'd say one of the biggest issues when you're talking about atheism is the problem of evil. That usually is the, one of the main reasons they give for not believing in God or not being religious. And so we're going to just uh, talk about the problem of evil some. All right, so Judaism. <clears throat> Anyone 
uh, know what the word Jew means? Where we get the word Jew from? Any ideas? Judah, absolutely. Yep. So, um, like in the Greek New Testament, there's a couple times your English Bible might say the Jews. Um, and that's actually in Greek, it's something Yodios, which is the Greek for Judah. And uh, it's kind of this Anglicized, Anglicization uh, through the Greek and Latin of the Hebrew Yehuda, Judah. Judah was the main surviving tribe of Israel coming out of Babylon. Um, and it kind of came to be synonymous with Israel as a whole. And over the years, especially in English, it became Jew. <clears throat> Jew is a complicated term because it's one of the only ethnicities that is also closely tied to a religion. You know, you maybe think of Arabs. Um, we often associate them as Muslims. Of course, not all of them are. But with Jewish, uh, it, it's so closely tied to a religion and the ethnicity that it, it kind of complicates what do we mean when we say uh, Jewish, because they're not all religiously Jewish. Uh, Judaism in America, uh, the big sections in America are Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Chicago, Los Angeles, and southern Florida. There's definitely Jews other places, but those are the, the main areas where they're located, um, and, and lots of, <clears throat> there's not as many in, in Raleigh. I'll talk a little bit about Raleigh in a minute, uh, but in the world, uh, Obviously, Israel, there's a lot, but even more in North America, 6 million in North America, 5 million in Israel, and then you see in other places um, just the Jewish population around the world. Let's talk about rabbinic Judaism. That is the, the main type of Judaism that is around today. Um, all different forms of Judaism that I'm going to introduce fall under this category of rabbinic Judaism. It formed officially around 200 A.D. Um, if you think about the big event in the Jewish community was 70 A.D., right, where the temple was um, thrown down by the Romans. And so that, that forced the rabbis, it was this really challenging new reality for them. The temple was gone. Um, and so what do we do with Judaism without the temple and without autonomy in Judah? And that's sort of where this idea of rabbinic Judaism uh, comes along, of trying to create this Jewish culture that really has this holy people um, wherever they live in their synagogues. So the main thing that happened in 200 AD that really brought about and started this rabbinic Judaism is the arrangement and the canonization, which is kind of the giving it authority of what would eventually constitute the authoritative Jewish writings. And so these are, the scriptures of them are, the, is the Tanakh and the Talmud, or Talmud. The Tanakh is basically the Old Testament. You'll see there a description. It's an acronym for um, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, which are basically the major sections of the Old Testament. But notice, it's also the Talmud. Um, that is an authoritative, at least in some um, Jewish circles, and also authoritative writing. Uh, do you guys know what the Talmud is? The Talmud is something that um, contains discussions and opinions regarding details of many oral laws believed to have originally been transmitted from Moses. So the, the, the theory is, the idea is that when Moses um, organized Israel and had all these elders, uh, you know, I think Exodus 18 talks about him having these elders, 
the, the tradition is, is that he started having kind of these bylaws to how to implement the law practically. Um, so um, he gave all these details to them and guidance. So the oral Torah, it includes rules intended to prevent violations of laws of the Torah and the Talmud. Um, it's sometimes referred to as a fence around the Torah. So let me give you some examples. Uh, the Torah prohibits certain types of traveling on the Sabbath. And so um, the, the Torah prohibits walking great distances on the Sabbath to ensure that one does not accidentally engage in a type of traveling. Um, and then the Torah pro prohibits plowing on the Sabbath. The oral tradition prohibits carrying a stick. So you don't want to even carry a stick to ensure that one does not drag the stick accidentally and engage in plowing. And so that's what the oral, that's what the Talmud is. It's all these extra laws to even guard you. So if you remember, there's a, lot, there's a couple instances in the Gospels where Jesus is going up against this. Uh, you think of the passage where he talks about divorce. Um, and he, he deals with some extra laws they made about divorce. There's other examples as well. Um, and then Paul, we're going to talk about Romans 9, um, 10 to 11, or 9 to 11 a little bit more later, but Paul, when he's talking about his, his pain over the Jewish community not coming to Christ, he says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer is to God is for them, that's the Jewish people, that they may be saved, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. Um, and he's, but he says, but not according to knowledge. And I think he's definitely referring a lot to the Talmud there, the extra oral tradition. You think, um, you know, one example is maybe we, we talk about the Catholic Church on how they believe in the scriptures, but they also put a lot of authority in tradition, the tradition of the church. And that's a similar dynamic in Judaism. Um, there's a lot we could say about their thought. One big passage for uh, a lot of Judaism is Jeremiah 33 where it talks about this, this promise that God has of Israel coming back and having the land, um, and it's going to dwell there securely. Um, and we don't have the time to get into all the theology of that, but you know, Christian theology takes that passage sort of as being fulfilled in Christ, partially, but all, will be ultimately fulfilled when Christ comes again. Uh, Jews obviously have a very different view of uh, an interpretation of that passage. Um, and so they're still waiting uh, for that to happen, um, what Jeremiah 33. And so even the, the formation of the nation um, of Israel in 1948 was kind of seen as like the birth pains, the birth pains of, of God beginning to do that work. That's, some of, that's a lot of thought in them. Um, so rabbinic Judaism today, there's a spectrum. That arrow is trying to communicate a spectrum. There's a, there's a wide-ranging spectrum of kind of practice and belief and emphases. Uh, one that you'll often think of as Orthodox Jews or even Hasidic Jews is a more, in the last couple hundred years, an even more um, strict version of Orthodox Jews. This is about 10 to 15% of Judaism. So it's, I don't know how that hits you. Maybe that's a smaller or bigger number than you thought. Um, this is essentially a continuation of the Pharisees. You think of the Pharisees in, the, old, in the, the Gospels. This is really a continuation of their thought and their, their rabbinic traditions. Strict observance of everything. And, you know, especially what I was talking about with the Talmud earlier. Strict observance, strict to all the kosher laws, etc., cetera. 
Um, their belief in the future is of a literal personal Messiah coming who they are still waiting for. Their services are still in Hebrew. So that's, uh, that's one extreme. In between is what are called conservative Jews. Uh, so they'll still dress up some. Um, they seek to preserve Jewish beliefs and customs while also adapting to the modern world. So it's a more hybrid kind of trying to draw from the best of their tradition but also accommodate to uh, the modern world. Um, and so only about 15% of conservative Jews, so within conservative Jews, which is the largest amount, 40% of the Jewish of Jewish people in the world are in the conservative camp, um, but only 15% of them keep kosher strictly. So there's even discrepancy there. Their belief um, of Messiah is not as firm as the Orthodox. They kind of believe more in this messianic age, more than like a literal Messiah. And then um, on the way other extreme from Orthodox is Reform Jews. You know who that is in that picture? Steven Spielberg. Um, I believe that this is what he is. I did a little research on that. Um, but there are a lot of people who are popular and who are Jewish, a lot of them are in this camp. Um, a very liberal wing of Judaism. Uh, if you can be a reform Jewish rabbi and you can be agnostic. I mean, that just gives you a sense of just how different they are than the Orthodox and even conservative Jews. Uh, their services are in English. Um, even more loose sense of who the Messiah is and what, you know, it's sort of this age of enlightenment that they're looking forward to. There's even, there's not really a specific Messiah they're looking forward to. Another interesting thing about them is they accept people who only have, so usually in Judaism it's, you need to have a mother who is of Jewish descent to be considered. So if you have a mixed marriage, um, is, the mother has to be Jewish for you to be considered Jewish. That's an orthodox and conservative. But in reform, you can even, if it's a mixed marriage and just the father is Jewish, they consider you Jewish. And that's kind of a disagreement they have. So just real quick, in Raleigh, um, this is a screenshot of North Raleigh. Our church is right there. So right down Creedmoor, you might have seen Temple Beth Or. That's a reform Jewish. So way on the, on the kind of more liberal side of things, uh, that's a reform Jewish congregation. Then Beth Meyer synagogue. Um, it's kind of by the library. Um, that is a conservative Jewish uh, synagogue. And then this, it says Jewish Life Center. That's actually not its name. Um, I forget the exact. It's an Orthodox Jewish. That's on Falls of Noose um, right there. So we have all three represented here in North Raleigh. Um, and I love how they put rock and roll sushi up there. I don't, I don't know why they put that up there. I've never been there. Um, but hey, now you know where it is. Um, so that's kind of a anti-Semitism. You've got you to gotta talk about that when you talk about Judaism. Um, it kinda, people think it started in um, the book of Esther with Haman. You know, his, what he tried to do to the Jewish people. Um, they're often persecuted through the ages for being monotheistic. Uh, even in Christianity, there is, uh, there's definitely some dark parts of Christian history where they have um, persecuted Jewish people or spoke really bad of them. Uh, John Christosom um, in the 300s or 400s, who's a famous uh, early church preacher, um, he said some really uh, discouraging things about Jewish people. 
uh, in the medieval times was the worst. Um, some called the Jewish people accursed and condemned because they had rejected Jesus. Jewish people were often confined to ghettos. They were made to wear distinctive clothing. They were excluded from some professions and ownership of land. Um, you know, pulpits would say they are killers of Christ. They were even sometimes accused of poisoning wells during the Black Death, um, accused of murdering children. Uh, there's this phrase called blood libel. Uh, if you, you may know if you've studied the Middle Ages, uh, where they would, a child would die and some would accuse the Jewish people of, of you know, killing them to take some of their blood. Uh, often in art, they were depicted with features resembling demonic qualities. Uh, Islam was pretty harsh towards them too. Um, and Jews saw this oppression as part of being the chosen. This is part of what it means to be God's people. Proverbs 3 says God disciplines those he loves, and that's kind of how they um, wrestled with it theologically. Um, who do you think, so I'm going to read this quote. This was a quote from the Middle Ages. Accordingly, it must and dare not be considered a trifling matter, but a most serious one to seek counsel against this and to save our souls from the Jews. That is, from the devil and eternal death. First, that their synagogues be burned down, and that all who are able to toss in sulfur and pitch, it would be good if someone could also throw in some hellfire. That would demonstrate to God our serious resolve and be evidence to all the world that it was ignorance that we tolerated such houses. Does anyone know who said this? Martin Luther. Yeah. So, um, you know, think of King David. Awesome man of God, man after God's own heart. He's got the Bathsheba story. I mean, this is kind of Martin Luther's Bathsheba moment. Uh, there are so many things we can celebrate about Martin Luther. Obviously, we don't toss the baby out with the bathwater, but he had, like we all do, some flaws. Earlier in his ministry, he was very sensitive towards Jewish people, um, but then he engaged with them quite a bit, and those interactions went really bad, and he really changed his mind. Um, some of you may know that... Uh, as uh, the Third Reich was growing in Germany and, and Nazism, they actually quoted Martin Luther at one point to try and justify and kind of get the church on their side. Um, and so you think of Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, which is you know, one of the primary passages we use when we dialogue with Jewish people. Well, they would interpret Isaiah 53 as talking about the nation of Israel. Um, they'd interpret some of these events as, well, that's talking about what's going to happen to Israel. Um, the, the video I'm about to show where I interview a guy who does ministry to Jewish people, one of his encouragements to us when we're engaging Jewish people is don't worry about offending them. They are pre-offended. Like, they, you can't offend them because they already, you're already, your score is negative 50 when you are talking to them because of some of this history. And he'll, he'll explain that a little bit more. Um, Christians call to evangelize the Jewish community. Um, Christianity is Jewish. Obviously, Old Testament is, you know, over half of our Bible. Jesus and all the apostles were Jewish. Paul would go where first? He'd go to the synagogue first in his mission work. Um, I'm excited that the, um, our women's ministry is going to be studying Hebrews this whole next year. That's going to deal a lot with, these were people who came out of the Jewish tradition to Christianity, then they were getting persecuted, and they were, they were on the verge of going back to Judaism. And Hebrews speaks a lot to how Christ is the fulfillment. Um, Romans, you think of Romans right away. He says the gospel is the power of God first to the Jews. And, you know, often we think, is that a statement of chronology? That it kind of started with Jesus speaking to the Jewish community and then it went out to the Gentiles. 
And some people think it's just a chronological statement, but others, in our, even in our circles, think it's more of a statement of priority, that there is a sense in which um, we should, in, in preaching the gospel, um, really want to evangelize the Jewish people as well. And Romans 9 through 11 talks a little bit more about that. So think of Jesus' own sorrow. There's examples in the gospel where Jesus has specific sorrow over the Jewish people. And then Paul says in Romans 9, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish um, over my own people, the Jewish people. He says, he would he, he says in Romans 9, I would, I would be willing to become accursed that they might be saved. If, if, I could, if it meant me becoming accursed that they would be saved, I would do it. Uh, Paul gets that extreme. And so the question in um, chapters 9 to 11 of Romans is, what do we do with the overwhelming rejection of Jesus by the Jews? God's chosen people. Has God's word failed? Why are, they all, why are hardly any of them um, coming to Christ is, is sort of the question that Paul is trying to discuss. And his answer throughout is no. God's word has not failed. The promise was never that every Jewish person would be saved. He kind of gets into that. Um, he just really talks a lot about God. God's sovereign election, Jacob I love, Esau hated, he quotes that, talks about Pharaoh's heart, and then he even talks about Elijah, who he just studied, and how Elijah, just like in Elijah's day, Elijah thought he was the only one left, but God had a remnant of 7,000, and so Paul kind of gets into that, and then in chapter 11, 15, he says, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order that somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So the, the Gentile acceptance, part of it, he says, will help Jews be jealous. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean? So there we get into this. What is Paul talking about here? Their acceptance. Um, are we talking literally that there's going to be a future Jewish acceptance, like a bigger Jewish acceptance, or is this kind of figuratively? And then we have that question again in 11 verse 26, um, where Paul says, in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. There is different ways that um, even uh, theologians in our own camp uh, take that verse. Is it talking about um, foretelling a mass conversion of the Jewish community before Christ comes? Or is it just asserting that salvation of all the remnant? You know, we as the church are the new Israel. Is that just talking about Israel in the sense of all? Or is it talking specifically about Jewish? And, and um, you know, people point out the way he speaks between Jews and Gentiles in Romans 9 through 11, there are strong arguments to say that there is potentially this view in Paul that there will be um, a, a kind of a Christian revival amongst the Jewish community in the world before Christ comes. So I won't read this whole quote, but this is Charles Hodge, someone in our tradition. Yeah, I see, just read the bold. He talks about the national conversion of the Jews. And at the end, he says this final restoration of the Jews. Um, I can give you that quote um, in a different format if you want it. Gerhardus Voss, who's another person in our tradition, um, he says to the events preceding the parousia, which is when Jesus comes back, belong, according to a uniform teaching of Jesus, Peter, and Paul, the conversion of Israel. Um, and at the end he says, one of the things that Romans 11 is saying, that in the future there will be a comprehensive conversion of Israel. Um, Jonathan Edwards had similar thoughts. John Owen, a Puritan, had similar thoughts. Um, John Calvin. 
And then even Westminster, larger catechism, when it says, what do we pray for in the second petition of the Lord's Prayer, which is thy kingdom come, notice it says, we, we, we acknowledge ourselves and all mankind to be by nature under the dominion of sin and Satan. We pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed, the gospel propagated throughout the world, the Jews called. So this is our own confession of faith, seems to have this sense from um, Romans 9 through 11, and they quote, I looked at the scripture kind of citation on that one, and they quote Romans 11. Um, there is an extreme form of this, though, uh, and that's dispensationalism. You've probably maybe heard of dispensationalism. I have some good resources on it if you want to dig deeper, but um, they have this sense that in the future there will be this reign of Christ over a converted Israel. So the church will get raptured, and then Christ will come down, and him and the, the converted Israel will reign over the earth for a thousand years. Uh, so only after the church is removed from history by the rapture and Jesus returns uh, to rule over a converted Jewish nation will the clock of prophecy begin again to move forward towards fulfillment. So they don't see the church as the new Israel. They, those are two separate categories in dispensationalism. So even with the reestablishment of the state of Israel in 1948, this view has become more popular Books promoting this perspective have sometimes sold in millions, like the book Late Great Planet Earth. Uh, again, I have more resources if you want to dig deeper into that. Now I'm going to turn it over to a video interview I did earlier this week on Zoom with a guy named Fred Klett. Um, he, one second, Brian, don't quite switch it yet. So he, he is over this ministry called Chaim, which means life, but it's also an acronym for Christians. Uh, he'll say it. I forget what the acronym is. Um, Christians announcing Israel's Messiah. But that's Fred actually right there blowing a shofar. Um, he's a PCA pastor in Philadelphia, and um, he does a great job. He's been doing this for decades, and so I have an interview with him, uh, and I'll kind of let it go from there. Here's a handout from his ministry. I only have 25. I don't want to make Brooke trifold a bunch of them. Um, so I'll pass some of these out. And then, Brian, you can go ahead and start that video. This is me and Fred. All right, Redeemer, I'm here with Reverend Fred Klett. Uh, he, as I've kind of told you guys, is the executive director of Chaim Ministry. It's a reformed ministry to Jewish, the Jewish population. It's based out of Philadelphia, um, as well as one of the planting pastors at Rock of Israel uh, Church in Philadelphia, a church consisting largely of Russian immigrants of Jewish background. Um, but many others as well. And uh, Fred, shalom to you. Thank you so much for taking some time to uh, share some of your ministry and some of your thoughts on reaching out to Jewish people to our congregation. Well, shalom back and uh, blessings. So good, good to talk to you. Yeah. So I want to just start, um, you know, what sparked your interest in the Jewish community in general and, and what eventually led you to start uh, Chaim? Well, growing up, I always seemed to have Jewish friends, no matter where we lived, Jewish friends and neighbors who we loved and, and cared for. And uh, when I was a student at uh, Johns Hopkins, I had Jewish, uh, Jewish roommate and Jewish friends of the large Jewish population. When I came to faith, well, dropping out of Johns Hopkins <laughs> pre-med, uh, I began to read the scriptures and uh, discovered, uh, you know, the Jewishness of Jesus and uh, how all the first Christians were Jewish. 
and of course how he fulfilled prophecy uh, like Isaiah 53 and fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures. And I felt uh, not only a kinship with uh, Old Testament saints, but uh, a desire to see Jewish people come to their own Messiah and wonder why more hadn't. And then I began to take some uh, instructional uh, seminars and learn about witnessing the Jewish people. And then I had early connection with uh, the Messianic Jewish movement and Jews for Jesus and ministries like that, and felt a real call to uh, take the gospel to Jewish people, found myself sharing the gospel with my Jewish friends, and at the same time, becoming reformed in my theology and went to Westminster Seminary. And while I was there, I painted houses and ended up painting houses for a lot of Jewish people and sharing the gospel while I'm painting their ceiling or whatever it might be. And continued to feel a call to Jewish ministry. The problem was uh, not being premillennial or dispensational, that disqualified me from most Jewish ministries. Mm. And so I eventually came to the point of uh, working with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship as a uh, Jewish ministry specialist. Then uh, after four years with InterVarsity, I worked with something called the Messianic Jewish Center in Philadelphia, which was the last piece of USA work. Uh, even though I was uh, licensed in the OPC at that point. And then, but I still had problems because I wasn't dispensational and the director was. And uh, so uh, eventually I needed to move on and I was encouraged to start a distinctively reformed ministry to Jewish people. So we started Chaim, which is an acronym for Christians Announcing Israel's Messiah our doctrinal basis of the Westminster Standards. And um, <clears throat> so now there are, there are three of us working with Chaim. So uh, that's kind of the, the story. Um, you know, struggling with all the issues of gospel and culture. And I, I look at Jewish ministry more as a cross-cultural uh, sort of ministry uh, rather than it coming out of a any kind of dispensational uh, view of the Jewish people. Um, but, um, you know, it's also been a mainstream reformed belief that God is going to bring revival among the Jewish people. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, so, you know, so much history now. You, This was back in the early 90s, I think, when you started Chaim. So kind of an unfair question, but I'd love to just hear a few thoughts on, you know, what have been some of the encouraging ways you've seen a God at work through Chaim? Well, it, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a tough road because you don't see just droves of uh, Jewish people coming to faith. So it's a matter of one here and one there. And uh, then you also have other people that come to faith as you're trying to reach Jewish people. Uh, so, you know, it's like, uh, it's like fishing for uh, muskies. Uh, if you're a fisherman, you know, a muskie is a very difficult fish to catch. But if you catch, uh, you know, some pike and pickerel and bass on the way, you know, that's, that's wonderful. So, uh, uh, you know, uh, it takes a lot of fishing sometimes to see a Jewish person come to faith. 
Uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding to overcome and so on. But uh, the Lord is uh, able to bring people to himself. We have seen people come uh, to him. A um, couple, of, couple of bright spots over the years. We had a young man from Romania, Eugene Alkali, who um, <clears throat> his parents were in Israel. Uh, he's here as a student uh, uh, sponsored by Leonard Bernstein. And I got to know him when he came uh, to Philadelphia, uh, a Lutheran family that had befriended him in Indiana, put me in touch with him and we became good friends and he became part of our family and eventually uh, came to faith. We got him plugged into uh, Redeemer PCA in New York, which uh, had a lot of attraction for artists and musicians. And uh, he, was, he lived uh, near there uh, when he was at Juilliard. So uh, he came to faith. And um, unfortunately, he passed away uh, two summers ago at a, at a young age of a massive heart attack. But uh, Eugene was one, one of the bright spots and you know, somebody that we, we sorely miss. Uh, give you another, another example of uh, one of the members of our uh, PCA church plant, Rock of Israel, uh, doing, doing street evangelism connected with a fellow named Orfan. And uh, Orfan's from Azerbaijan came over here with $500 in his pocket. Uh, I met him shortly after he moved to Philadelphia. And uh, Orfan, it turns out, is Muslim on his father's side, but his uh, mother's side are Persian Jews. Mm -hmm. And so Orfan came to faith, and uh, eventually his wife came to faith. She, she died of, uh, of, of cancer. Uh, but uh, she came to faith before she passed away and went to be with the Lord. So uh, Orphan is a, a member of our congregation, and uh, and it's interesting what God uses. Um, I'm also, a, not everybody knows this, but I'm also a blues musician on the side, and uh, to have a little fun, I bill myself as Rabbi Chitlins. If you know what Chitlins are, they're about the most non-kosher food there is. It's their pig intestines. So... Um, I call myself Rabbi Chitlins, but uh, Orphan and I hit it off because coming from Baku, Azerbaijan, lo and behold, he's a blues musician. And so uh, the two of us hit it off right away, became very good friends, and he's still uh, uh, holding on to the faith, and he's a part of our congregational plant. He read the Westminster Standards and loves them, uh, read them in Russian. So... Uh, those are, those are two of the big bright spots. We've had other people come to faith over the years. Uh, a number of people have come to faith, passed away afterwards. Um, one older gentleman named Sam, whose daughter was a believer, and uh, he passed away. We had, not, we had two other people that came out to home Bible studies that we had and professed faith, but they've died since. So uh, there are a number of uh, people that we know are with the Lord. Uh, who are uh, who came who came to faith over the years? Uh, right now, uh, we have a, a number of Jewish uh, people that I'm in touch with that have become good friends, and uh, you know some we've been sharing the gospel with for years and years, and uh, and we just keep praying for them. And uh, I've got one very good friend uh, now, uh, and uh, he's very open. Uh, I'd say he's, he's, he's open, but not seeking or hungry, but he's very open and he's a dear friend. And, uh, you know, you can, 
love people and pray for them and share the gospel with them, but you, you can't force them to believe. Uh, all you can do is be there and, and uh, when God gives you the opportunity, share with them intelligently. Yeah. And I, it's in his hands. Yeah. And I, I should have had you at the beginning. Do you mind just briefly describing like, what does the ministry of Chaim look like? Y'all do. Yeah. <clears throat> well, as I said, we felt that there needed to be a reformed ministry to Jewish people. At the time, there wasn't really one in the United States. And I became the first ordained evangelist to Jewish people in the PCA. There are a couple of us now. Uh, so uh, we had a threefold ministry. We have a threefold ministry purpose. And uh, over, overall, to advance the reformed involvement in Jewish missions, but uh, to be involved in direct evangelism. We've done uh, a lot of street work. We've done door-to-door -door work. We've hosted events where we invite people out, and special concerts. We, we've, uh, I think we've done just about every kind of evangelistic uh, outreach there is, uh, practically. Uh, so direct, direct evangelism. Uh, fellowship and discipleship for uh, Jewish believers would be the second one. And uh, over many years, we've had home fellowships to, to help Jewish Christians deal with, you know, how do you put together being Jewish and believing in Jesus? How do you deal with your family? How do you deal with the church? How do you deal with your Jewish identity and holidays and all those sorts of things? So we've had uh, home fellowships that have dealt with that. But then we came to the point of believing uh particularly because of the large Russian-speaking Jewish community. Most are from Ukraine. Uh, there's some from Russia proper and from other countries in the former Soviet Union. But we felt there was a need uh, for a congregation to be established to minister to these folks. A lot of people don't realize that if you're an immigrant who comes over, uh, say, when you're over 20 years old, uh, you may gain some proficiency in the English language enough to do business and get by, but understand the sermon is a little difficult. So we felt there was a need to uh, start a congregation, not only reaching out to those that speak Russian, but the second generation uh, who, who tend to speak English. And so then uh, our, the, the fellowship and discipleship became focused in Rock of Israel PCA church plant. Um, in, in mostly Northeast Philadelphia, where, where the large majority of Russian-speaking immigrants are. So that's the second aspect of the work, is fellowship and discipleship. And then the third aspect is uh, motivating and equipping the church, because more Jewish people come to faith through Christians, through Gentile Christians in the church, than through any uh, particular Jewish ministry. And so to help Christians understand how to under, how to speak to the Jewish friends, how to understand the different branches of Judaism, and to understand the, the Jewish perspective toward Jesus and Christianity, uh, you know, and help them to know how to make connections uh, through Jewish holidays and uh, other Jewish concepts, to listen first uh, and find out where people are coming from and try to connect with them uh, intelligently that way. So so doing Passover seders in churches or programs on the Jewish high holy days that are coming up. Uh, we have a Chaim Times newsletter. So those different uh, ways of trying to help Christians to know 
uh, how to share the good news with their Jewish friends. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so in, in all of that work, you've kind of mentioned probably one of the bigger challenges is that whole uh, fishing analogy you used earlier, which is super helpful, just how slow and, and patient you need to be in this work. But you mind just sharing one or two other of the major challenges in this work? Well, yeah, I mean, we have, we have community opposition. Mm -hmm. uh, the local rabbi in the Russian-speaking community uh, doesn't like us and <laughs> warns people against us and says we're, we're really not the, their friends. Um, you know, it's perceived that if you're trying to get Jewish people to believe in Jesus, you're destroying them spiritually and culturally. Uh, so there are those kind of issues. There are professional anti-missionaries. Uh, when I uh, first started Jewish ministry with InterVarsity down at the University of Pennsylvania, we had a professional anti-missionary on campus. And I had my students that I was training to do evangelism and he had his students that he was training to refute us uh, and to get in our way. I'd go out, hand out pamphlets and they'd stand next to me and tell people not to take them or hand out their own. We'd put up posters for a meeting, they'd tear them down. We'd go in the middle of the night and, and put them up again. Uh, that, kind of, that kind of thing. He, he taught a, a, a course on uh, how to refute the missionaries, which of course I took. And uh, so, you know, you have a professional anti-missionary movement as well as uh, family opposition, community opposition, uh, the rabbis who certainly, uh, you know, want to discourage uh, Jewish people from believing in Jesus. So those are some of the, some of the challenges. Uh, you know, apathy is a challenge also, just people in general in our culture are often very apathetic about spiritual things. Yep. yep. Well, I, I appreciate that you gave me. I'll be um, offering that to our church, but I'd love to hear just from you. We could spend a ton of time on this question, but just what are two to three encouragements you'd give to our church um, as they think about how to engage uh, uh, their Jewish friends? Well, you know, um, a lot of people are afraid to share the good news with their Jewish friends because they think they might be offended by it. Uh, I, I'd say, okay, relax a little bit. The Jewish people are pre-offended. Mm -hmm. they, they perceive uh, the Catholic Church and uh, Billy Graham and the Pope and Adolf Hitler as all being Christians. Mm -hmm. So, um, <laughs> you know, don't worry about offending them uh, so much. Worry about their eternal salvation. And uh, if you're so worried about uh, maybe they're not going to like you, uh, so you're not going to tell them the good news, um, what are you putting as the most important uh, thing? Your, 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 you know, how they feel about you or, or their salvation. Uh, a wise man once said that uh, the, <clears throat> the worst form of anti-Semitism is not to tell Jewish people about Jesus. The most subtle form of anti-Semitism is to tell them in a way that they can't understand. And so I think it's important uh, not only to pray for your Jewish friends and uh, to connect with them and, and tell them the good news, uh, but do it in a way they understand. Do it intelligently. A uh, very practical thing is to understand the Jewish holidays, particularly Passover and uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and go to the gospel from those holidays. So you can ask your Jewish friend, it's a very non-threatening thing to say, oh, Passover's coming up. Oh, Yom Kippur's coming up. Tell me what you do and how, what it means to you. 
and then listen first and then say, you know, that holiday means a lot to me as well. And your Jewish friend will probably be a little surprised that you even know about it or can speak intelligently about it. And I have resources uh, online where you can learn about those holidays and how they point to the Messiah. Um, and then, you know, you can say, uh, they say, well, how, how, why does that mean so much to you? And then you can say, well, uh, can, I, can I tell you about why it means so much to me? And so that's, uh, that's an easy way into the gospel, explaining Jesus as the Passover lamb. Uh, Jesus was our atonement, uh, connecting with the Day of Atonement. So knowing the Jewish holidays, I think, is important. I think expressing your faith in a way that shows that you believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You believe in the God of Israel. <laughs> Understanding terminology. You know, you might say you need to be born again and believe in Christ and be washed in the blood. Well, you say that to, to Jewish people, and, and most secular people, they're going to think, what are you talking about? Uh, so you're going to have to explain things a little bit and not just use cliches. Um, you know, uh, Moses and Jeremiah spoke of having your heart circumcised, for instance. That's how born again was explained in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you might want to say Messiah. People think Christ is Jesus' last name. They don't know that it's, it means the same thing as Messiah. Um, you know, simple things like that. And I, I think those things um, carry through for secular people as well. That you, you just can't assume that people understand Christian terminology. So you have to preach the, the eternal same gospel, but you have to preach it in such a way that people understand it and using language that they, that they can understand uh, and, and connect with. Yeah. And well, there's so much more we could cover, but uh, thank you so much. We're obviously thankful that God has uh, equipped you and called you to the ministry of Chaim and, and just all the ways he's working through you and your ministry. Um, we will definitely be praying for that. And also just thank you for taking a few minutes to, to share some thoughts with us. Well, stop in at our, our website. It's very simple. It's www.chaim.org. And there's some other resources and papers and things there. And I'm always uh, glad to help somebody who might have some questions uh, if they're sharing with a Jewish friend and need some help or encouragement. So feel free to contact me. All right. Thanks so much, Fred. All right. We'll talk Thanks, Ross.